My name is Greg Boyd. I'm the senior pastor here at Willow Hills Church. And once in a while, they let me play the conga drums. So that's always kind of fun. Um, uh, Darrell said on, the, on the, uh, the video there that I, uh, he thinks I speak truth and that I've been through some struggles. And he's certainly right about the second, and I try to do the first. And this is one of those messages that uh, are um, about truth. Is truth always pleasant? Yes. No. <laughs> yeah. well, answer that question after the message. We'll see. It's always liberating. It's always liberating. It's not always easy to hear. And uh, this message uh, might be for some, uh, some somewhat of a challenge. We're uh, in this series on Compassion by Command, dealing with God's heart for the poor. And uh, we're spending this amount of time on this. Some have wondered why we're spending so much time on it. But we're spending this much time on it because we want to go deep into it, because it's a high priority on God's heart, obviously, given the, the uh, repetitive way he talks about it in Scripture, over 3,000 verses dealing with poverty and coming against greed and things of that sort. But also, this is a, a front-burner issue for us. God has put this on our heart in a, in a, in a, in a fiery kind of a way. Uh, you know, we were supposed to be, once upon a time, a uh, suburban church plant. We never quite made it out to the suburbs. That's why we have a suburban-sounding name. People have asked me about that sometimes. Why are you called Woodland Hills? Because there's no wood, there's no hills, and what's the deal? Well, you know, about six months into this ministry, we felt God calling us to face the city, not necessarily be in the city, but have a heart for the city and a heart for reconciliation and a heart for the poor and things like that, and to be sort of a bridge, a bridge between all people and God, but a bridge between people and people, a bridge across socioeconomic lines, a bridge across ethnic lines, and we're growing in that identity. Um, it's no coincidence, I don't think, that our property line is on the border between the city of St. Paul and Maplewood. We are that, that, that bridge. Uh, but that's why this is a, 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 an issue that is, has been growing uh, and a vision that God has given us. And it's just so cool to see this really starting to be incarnated and getting fleshed out and see people getting bought in on this and, and hear stories like we just heard on that video and to see all the bags of food out there, the groceries. I just thank you for, for responding to that and for Project Homes, uh, the way you guys have stepped up. Uh, it's almost all full, I'm told, in terms of people volunteering. So that's just beautiful. It's just beautiful. And let's just uh, uh, keep going in that direction and buckle your seatbelts because it's going to get... It's going to get wild and crazy and wonderful. And this is what the kingdom is all about. This message on truth is going to be called Poverty and Generational Sin. I could also call it Poverty, Powers, and Race. It could be spun in a number of different ways. But it is, I think, one of the most important aspects of poverty, understanding poverty, and also understanding race relationships, because you can't, in America anyways, uh, separate those two. It's so foundational to understanding what's going on in this world, uh, so foundational to, to uh, under, having an understanding that will empower us to effectively deal with race relations and with uh, economic issues, but it's also the one that I believe, in fact, I'm convinced it's the least understood because it's so countercultural for us here in uh, America. Uh, before I even get into the first passage, I want to take a moment and pray. Because this is one of those messages where we really need the Holy Spirit to be working in our hearts to hear it straight and to let it impact us. Father, I thank you for every person in this auditorium, every person listening through podcasts, television, or any other means. And Lord, for some of this, this might confront some idols, it might confront some presuppositions, 
But God, help us to love your word more than the comfort of what we're already convinced of. Lord, help us to love your word more than the stories we've sometimes lived in and the, and the lies we've sometimes believed. Lord, help us to lower our defenses and receive your word, to be liberated by your word, build your kingdom in our heart, in our lives, in our mind, and empower us to be your people, walking faithful according to your mandates. In Jesus' name, we pray and all God's people said, amen. amen. Exodus chapter 20 says this. I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Lovely. Delightful. Don't you just love passages like that? It might help a little bit to know that the word jealous there, uh, it doesn't at all mean kind of what, the way we humans sometimes get jealous. We get petty and stuff like that. That's not what the word, word means. The word jealous that's used here in Hebrew actually uh, means zealous. It's, it's to be zealous to protect something. And what God is zealous for is his people. What God is zealous for is the well-being of his people and the honor of his name. That's why God is jealous because he doesn't want his people chasing after false gods because that's not good for him and it desecrates his name. And his name and character is all wrapped up with his people. So it's not petty jealousy. It's being zealous to protect something that is extremely valuable. But what does it mean when it says that he punishes the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation? What makes that particularly puzzling is that not only does that confront our basic sensibilities and moral intuitions, but um, it goes against what the Bible says in other places. For example, it says in Ezekiel 18, the child will not share the guilt of the parent. Nor will the parents share the guilt of the child. The righteousness of the righteous are, is, will be credited to, the, to them, and the wickedness of the wicked will be charged against them. You're only responsible for what you do and what you could have done otherwise. You're not responsible for your parents' sin. They're not responsible for your sin. So in that sense, it's an individual thing. So how do you put these things together? On the one hand, you're only morally responsible for what you do. On the other hand, the sin... Uh, of the parents is passed down and somehow you're punished for it. What do we do with this? To explain that, we need to, I think, understand the word that's translated punish there. It's, it's pakad in Hebrew. And it literally means to visit, to visit. In fact, some translations uh, just leaves it like, like that. The, the Lord visits the sin of the uh, parents on the third and fourth generation. Though most don't go that way because what does that mean? What do you mean you visit the sin on the third and fourth generation? But what it, what it refers to is that God shows up. God visits. God is there. And it doesn't necessarily mean that God is there to punish. Sometimes that same word is used to say that God is there, but he's there to bless. For example, it says in Ezekiel or Exodus 13, Moses took the bones of Joseph with him because Joseph had made uh, uh, the Israelites swear an oath. He said, God will surely come to your aid. Pakad. God will surely visit us to assist us. And then you must carry my bones up with you from this place. So it means God visits, not necessarily to punish, but it could be to bless. And sometimes it can mean either, which is probably what it means in this passage. In this context, it seems that God is saying, I will visit the children of those whose ancestors sinned and he'll visit sometimes to punish sometimes to assist and bless 
but it, it just means he's going to be there. Probably the best translation, I think, is the one that's found in the New English Translation. An incredible translation, by the way. It's got 60, over 60,000 notes on it in terms of references to the original language, and it's a great study Bible. Rather academic, but, but uh, very cool. And it translates this passage this way. God, uh, 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 God will be responding to the transgression of fathers by dealing with, pakad, dealing with children to the third and fourth generations. God will do what God needs to do in response to the fact that the sin is being passed down. The point here is that the sin of the forefathers and foremothers is passed down, is experienced in some way to the third and fourth generation, but God will always be there to deal with it. God doesn't just say, oh, sorry, I'm out of here. No, he deals with it. He's always picking up the pieces, turning evil into good, bringing about his redemptive purposes. Now, this understanding of generational sin is really contrary to our Western worldview. Here, I'm speaking to people who share the Western worldview. Because we tend to think of sin as an individual thing, of morality as a strictly individual thing. My sin is about me. And I may suffer from it, but it's about me. But the Bible has a much more holistic perspective. In fact, almost every culture throughout history, until the modern Western culture, has had a more holistic perspective. I think a more accurate perspective when it realizes that no man is an island, that what you do affects other people. And sometimes it's passed down to the third and fourth generation and maybe even beyond that. I mean, in some sense, look, at we're all still suffering the impact of what Adam and Eve did. There's ripple effects to what we do. But God will always be there visiting to bring redemptive value out of that. Now, this is so important for us to understand, the generational effects of sin, because without it, we'll never understand the cyclical nature of poverty, how people get stuck in a system and it's bigger than themselves. We need to understand the generational aspect of wrongdoing, how a curse can be passed down, and who we are today to some degree, to some degree at least, is defined by what happened in the past. Yes, we're only guilty, only guilty for what we do, but we suffer the effects of what others have done, just as others will suffer the effects of what we do. Now, my goal today in this message is simply to help us see this generational aspect of sin and therefore come to an understanding of the cyclical nature of poverty and a more clear understanding of how the principalities and powers affect all of this and affect all of us. To get at this, I want to show a little clip from an interview that we've done with our worship uh, pastor, Norm Blagman. Uh, he's got a story to tell. Uh, I'll be sharing a little bit more about this next week. But here's a, a little slice of this interview that I did with Mary Van Sickle, which uh, starts to get us in on the cyclical nature of poverty. So watch very attentively this uh, four-minute segment of his interview. Norm. Yes. Where were you raised? Or tell me about your... Where was I raised? Childhood. Uh, my birth certificate says I was born in Roanoke, Virginia. Oh. Uh, to uh, William and Clara Blagman. Um, and as my mother would say, we ended up moving to New York because my father was running from the police. Um, so we ended up in Yonkers, New York, I guess when I was really little. So you had a family? So who was in the family? Uh, well, it was 
you know, my, my mother and my father and uh, my two sisters, and we're all a year apart. I'm the oldest. I'm the only male, and two girls were all a year apart. And so your parents stayed married, or what? No, my father left when I was 11 years old. He took off with another woman and, and uh, left town. You know, my father was a really bad alcoholic. I mean, he was a violent alcoholic. Mm -hmm. And um, he had, like, a sixth grade education. Um, and so uh, he worked most that I remember when he was around. He worked as a janitor. Um, but he was, he was just an angry man. My mother worked two jobs. She was a domestic. So she'd go and clean people's homes and, and uh, you know, prepare their meals and all. Then she'd hop on the bus and come home. But he, never, he rarely brought any money home. I mean, he'd go out and spend the money on going out drinking with the buddies and gambling and, and doing that whole thing. And then they'd get into these fights and then he'd get violent and, you know, and then he'd beat everybody in the house. Everybody, girls, sisters, you, everybody. All of us. Yeah. How was your relationship with him? It was hard in the fact that I think that he, 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 was, he was just an angry man. He just um, was angry at the world. Because? Well, I mean, but he grew up in the time of Jim Crow and, and segregation and, um, you know, his opportunities were, were nil and, um, you know, and, you know, he'd get in trouble with the law with, with you know, thieving and, and uh, fighting and, and carousing and stuff and he always seemed to be on the run from what I understood. Did he want you to be a part of that or did he want something different for you? When I look back on it, I think a lot of it had to do with the fact that because he didn't have a whole lot in his life mm -hmm. going on, um, surely his son was not going to be better than him. Mm. Um, so he always tried to, um, you know, keep me down. We were doing a, um, a concert for um, the big ice cream uh, place on the East Coast is called Carvel. And my father happened to walk in while we were doing it. Um, and knowing that he would make a scene, I ran off the stage um, and, and walked all the way home, hmm. uh, which happened to be about eight miles to get home. I was getting my name in the paper, getting my picture in the paper, um, and that kind of thing. And of course, his cronies were like, well, did you see your sons in the paper and, and all this stuff? And it, he would just get outraged. He, you know, my mother ended up... I, a number of times ended up taking beatings from him because she would sneak me out of the house to go to concerts because he didn't want me going out hanging with those white people. Well, my sisters, I think, struggled with the fact that I was an embarrassment to them because their friends used to tease them and, and all because I was an Oreo and a sellout because I'm going out singing with these white folks. and it, I think it was hard on them, which I think exacerbated the resentment yeah. um, of, of my father and, and all he had done. Prior to, and then I turn out to be, you know, a lone male of the family, and I'm still, in, you know, and I'm still bringing them grief from the standpoint of what their their friends were were saying to them. Yeah. Um, you know, and I used to get chased home and, and beat up, and and I was set afire one time, and and. Uh, what was that about? It just jealousy. You know, you think you're better than us. You think you got it going on. So, you know, they doused me with turpentine and threw a match at me. I still have the scars on my hand. Is that from when they... Yeah, when they set me up. Because holding my... Because as my shirt's on fire, I'm holding this away. I was burning my hand. And also had the, the burn marks under my neck, Oh, too. is that what that's from? Yeah. yeah. He's got a story to tell. Everyone's responsible for their own choices. But can you see something about a system there 
Norm, as we'll share next week, broke out of that system. But you see how a system like this could reinforce people staying down. What does it do to someone to have a father who just beats them? Some of us know. Uh, but it affects you. Gets drunk and just beats you arbitrarily. Or to have a father who views your success as a threat and therefore is invested on making sure that you don't ever rise above where he was at. What does that do to your psyche? To have peers who view your, the doors of opportunity that you're walking through, to view that as selling out, being a trader, you're an Oreo. You think that that might affect a person in some ways. What does it do when you get set on fire by your peers because they think that you're, you think you're better than them because you're taking, uh, you're seizing some opportunities. Norm has shared with me about how he's several times growing up as a little kid saw his father get stopped by policemen for driving in the wrong neighborhood and sometimes get roughed up by them. What, 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 might, what might that do to a person's outlook on life? Uh, to grow up with this deep suspicion towards white people and especially white authority and to have that confirmed in various ways throughout your life, uh, might that affect your ability to prosper in a white-dominated culture? Of course it would. Yes, there's individual responsibility. Never will deny that. We're only guilty for what we ourselves choose to do, but we also have to look at systemic issues. We have to be aware of the principalities and powers that use systemic aspects of the culture to keep people oppressed, advantaging some and disadvantaging others. Systemic things through peer pressure and fathers and generational sin. And until we grasp the system, you see, we'll think that poverty is an easy issue. We think that it's primarily about the absence of things, so let's just throw more money and more things at people and that will fix it, but it never does. In fact, if we don't understand the system, the powers, the generational effect of sin, well then often our attempts to help will do more harm than good. We've got to be aware of the system, the principalities and the powers. In fact, the Bible tells us that this is our main warfare. This is our main struggle. As I said and talked on several weeks ago, Paul says in, in Ephesians chapter 6 that our struggle is not against flesh and blood. If it's got flesh and blood, it's someone you're fighting for. Never supposed to be someone you're fighting against. Never. But our battle is against the rulers and authorities and powers of this dark world and against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. I just refer to that whole group as the powers. Spiritual forces that use systemic aspects of culture to keep people oppressed making some oppressed and being the oppressor and others the oppressed by the ones who are the oppressors. We've got to be aware of the powers. Now, I, to get at this, I'm going to here share um, just a, a snippet of some statistics. And yeah, hear me out on this. This is a little bit risky doing this because it can reinforce some people's racial stereotypes. But you've got to hear this out. I'm going to use it to illustrate something. And I'm going to focus on just a few little statistics uh, regarding African Americans and American Indians. I could have chosen any number of different people groups. But for historical reasons, I think these two groups are the ones that most clearly illustrate the influence of the powers and generational sin in America. Some statistics. Black families earn on average $21,000 less than white families. That's speaking of a family of four. Blacks are three times more likely to live below the poverty line than whites. According to the Bureau of Justice Statistics, blacks are seven times more likely than whites to commit a violent crime and to be victims of violent crime. Uh, 
According to the same bureau, black men are six times more likely to go to prison during their lifetime than white men. Almost one in three black men in America will spend some time in prison, and that's twice the rate that uh, they're likely to go to college. Regarding American Indians and Alaskan Natives, uh, American Indians are three times more likely, as with black families, three times more likely to live below the poverty line than whites. American Indians are four times more likely to commit suicide than the national average. The rate of substance abuse among American Indians is approximately 30 to 40% higher than the national average. And I give that spread because I found conflicting data on that one. According to the Christian Alliance for Indian Child Welfare, American Indian babies have at least five times the rate fetal alcohol syndrome as the general population. And this is just a small snippet of statistics. I could go on and on and on because across the board you're going to see uh, statistically significant variances between those two people groups and white folks. They tend to have a lower education level, a greater incidence of disease, lower life expectancy, higher single parent uh, homes, and so on and so on and so on. And now I want to ask the question, why? What could explain this? What could explain this? Now, undoubtedly, there's a number of complex sociological, spiritual factors that we'd have to factor in to have a clear understanding of this. But ultimately, I submit to you, it boils down to two general options. And really, those two general options are expressed in the two passages we were wrestling with earlier. Exodus 20 versus Ezekiel 18. Is it a generational sin sort of thing, a principality in power, a systemic thing, or is it an individual choice thing? We in general, Americans in general, and uh, I'll just let the podcasters know who aren't in America that this is an American-specific message right now, and so you apply it to your own cultural situation as seems fit. But Americans in general, and especially white Americans, tend to view these sorts of issues in individual terms. It's about individual choice. We explain behavior by appealing to decisions that people make. Uh, there's a lot of reasons why that is the case, but a lot of it has to do with the kind of American culture of rugged individualism. Uh, it's been one of the mantras of the culture that, that this is a land where any individual, if you choose rightly and work hard at it, well, you can become anything. You can accomplish anything. This is a land of equal opportunity. This is a land of the free and the brave, Right? And so ultimately you explain behavior by saying, well, that's just what they chose. I had a discussion with a pastor and his wife and a staff at a church where I uh, was doing a conference. We went out to eat. We got talking about poverty issues and talking about the ghetto, the nature of the ghetto. And this, this pastor said with a little bit of frustration, uh, he goes, I, well, I just don't get this because if black people don't like living in the ghetto, why don't they move out? And he's just very sincere about that. And his wife then chimed in and says, yeah, I mean, like when our neighborhood started moving south, that's what we did. We moved out. Why can't they? And I'm not sure what move, when the neighborhood going south meant. Uh, I didn't want to ask. But we can do that. Why can't they? It's a very typical European modernistic white worldview. Everyone is responsible for their own choices. And that's the final explanation. Now, it's true 
that everyone is responsible for their own choices insofar as they could have done otherwise. The trouble is, is when that becomes our only explanation, our final explanation, our forefathers, we're told, built this land from the ground up using just 40 acres and a mule. Hard work, individual choices, individual labor, and that's what built up this great country. We did it, why can't they? That perspective, that strictly individualistic perspective, leads to racism. Not intentionally, perhaps, but it does lead to racism. Follow me on this. If there's a statistical difference between different races, and by the way, the very term race is a modern social construct invented by white folks in the 18th century to justify treating people in subhuman ways. That's why the Supreme Court in the 19th century defined a black person as three-fifths human. But we use that term. And if there's different races, different ethnic groups that have statistically different behavior, and if you believe it all boils down to choice, well then, it must be the case, the only way of explaining things is to say, well, there must be something about being a black person that they just choose that. That's all there is to be said about it. There must be something you know, that the black folks just must like to choose violence and just must like to choose poverty and they choose not to work, uh, you know, hard. And, and those, those Native Americans, well, they just make these choices to drink a lot, I guess, and to commit suicide. I don't know why they keep choosing that, but they, say, they seem to. If individual choice is the final explanation and there's a statistical pattern in any people group, well, then it just must be that those individuals choose that and they could choose otherwise, which means that it's just about, it's something about their race. That's what I mean by racism. In fact, I wouldn't be terribly surprised if some listening to this message, either in the auditorium or on podcasts, when I gave those statistics, it might have activated some racial stereotypes that you have. Because you, you may be wondering, why do they always choose to do that? Choice is the final, choice is the final explanation. Because, see, we have this legacy of rugged individualism. We need to talk about this. I'd like to, at this moment, announce, make an announcement that I am a white person. I don't know if you noticed that or not, but I am a white person of Irish-Scottish descent. Uh, and I don't feel guilty about that, and I don't think anyone should ever feel guilty about their, their ethnic heritage or anything of the sort. So remember that as I proceed forward here. Remember, I love white people, and you shouldn't feel guilty about being white. It's not about that. But what I'm going to say here is going to challenge, I believe, some people's story, the story they, they live in in their heads. And it might confront some idols. And I just encourage you to lower defenses, get all your life from Jesus Christ, nothing else, and, 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 and hear what's going to be said here. Let's talk about the myth of rugged individualism. I grew up with this story. Uh, many of us white folks did. It's the story of the wild, wild west, about the great pioneers, uh, those brave souls who uh, just on their own, 40 acres and a mule, they just built this country up. It's the story of cowboys and Indians. And you don't have to guess who the good guys are in that story. The story of these heroes who just on their own, through their effort and right choices, uh, built this country up. 40 acres and a mule. But at some point, you've got to ask the question, where do we get the 40 acres from? Uh, I, uh. The answer is we stole it. We came and we conquered. That's what nations do. This is what we did. And we did it in very barbaric, ruthless, dishonest ways. And it was that way right from the start. The story I was told growing up was that Christopher Columbus discovered America. Like no, 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 one, no one worthy of mentioning really discovered it before us. It's officially discovered when we discover it. By the way, history is always written by the conquerors, and you need to remember that when you read history books. 
because uh, this is the last stuff that I, I wasn't taught growing up. Uh, right from the start, I encourage you to, if, if you get time, to, to read a little book uh, by Father Las Casas, who was a priest that accompanied Christopher Columbus over here. It's called A Short Account of the Destruction of the Indies. He was a very young priest, and when he first came over here, he really bought into the program. And a colonization, and we're going to bring the gospel to the world. And in fact, he owned slaves. When they first came over here, they made slaves of the indigenous population, and he went along with that. But over time, he began to, in fact, quite soon, began to see the, 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 the horror of what was going on, the genocide of what was going on. And he would appeal to the Spanish authorities and to the Catholic authorities trying to get them to pull back a little bit on the viciousness of what was going on, but they didn't listen. And so he gives an eyewitness account of some of the atrocities that occurred when we white folks discovered America. I actually was going to give a quote and I decided it would be in bad taste because it's about raping and pillaging and, uh, and, and torturing and slaughtering and much of it done in Jesus' name. There's a long tradition of this in, in, in the history of America. Sermons preached along the lines of a sermon I discovered this last week, Cotton Mathers. He was a Puritan preacher, and in 1646 preached this message. Uh, I think it was called the comfort, uh, co Comforting the Soldiers. And in this sermon, and this is just all too typical of sermons that were preached during this time by Puritans and others, and it was, this, it was saying that we white Europeans are the new Israel. We're the new Israel. And the indigenous population, these are the Canaanites. And just as God, Jehovah, had the Israel slaughter the Canaanites, so God is calling us by divine right to take this land and to slaughter if necessary. And we did in God's name. Over and over again, we conquered. White Europeans conquered. Over and over again, white Europeans took land and relocated the natives, those who survived, and put them on smaller parcels of land and then turned around and took the smaller parcel of land when we wanted it and put them on an even smaller, smaller parcel of land. Historians record over 750 broken treaties between white Europeans and uh, natives of the land, which is really weird because when I grew up, we had this phrase, Indian giver. Don't be an Indian giver. It means you take back something you gave. Like they were the ones taking back what they gave. It's just... One particular terrible example of this uh, is uh, we at one point, uh, white Europeans, when I say we, I'm referring here to white Europeans, made a treaty with the Cherokees and, and several other uh, American Indian groups that they'd have their own nation. And so we created the, the, the Indian nation or the Cherokee nation. It bordered five states. And we were just going to build up America around them. They're going to be a sovereign nation within this nation. Trouble is, we discovered gold on that Cherokee Nation, so we wanted it. So we decided in 1830, Andrew Jackson and an all-white Congress passed the Indian Removal Act, in which we we're going to re relocate those folks over to this barren land. We called it Oklahoma, which means red people. That's what the term means. And so we had what was called the March of Tears, what the, the natives called the March of Tears. Uh, thousands died in the process and marched them over to this, this land. Now, this was going to be your land, your sovereign state because we found gold in the uh, Cherokee Nation. Trouble is, someone discovered oil in Oklahoma. <laughs> so now we want that land. So we go in there and we put them on smaller parcels of land, kind of in reservations, and march them all over the place. And many of them die in the process. And those that resist are, of course, uh, exterminated by divine right. And finally, in 1907... Uh, we took this now mostly white state and we welcomed it into the Union and Oklahoma became the 47th state of the Union. 
the name that means red people. What's a little bit tragically comic, ironic, and gross is that 35 years later, Rodgers and Hammerstein put on a Broadway musical entitled Oklahoma. And the theme song goes like this, Oklahoma, where the wind comes sweeping down the plains, where the waving weed can sure smell sweet when the wind comes right behind the rain. We know we belong to the land, and the land we belong to is grand. And when we say, yay, a yippee-yay, oh yay, we're only saying you're doing fine, Oklahoma. It's the official state song of the red people state. And it's the white people singing this. We belong to this land. We're dealing with the sins of our forefathers and foremothers being passed down to the third, fourth, fifth generation. And we can't possibly understand the statistical differences with uh, American Indians unless you understand some of this history. What does it do to a people group when they're systematically conquered, systematically slaughtered, butchered, beaten down, betrayed, herded around, dehumanized? And that happens for centuries. Might that affect the psyche of some people? Might that break the spirit of some people? Might that have something to do with their level of poverty and the problems with substance abuse and the suicide rates? Possibly? We have to understand the powers and generational sin. Otherwise, we're going to continually misdiagnose the problem and think it's an easy solution when, in fact, it's, it's much bigger than just people lacking certain things. I, I, a number of years ago, did a conference at a church that uh, had uh, close to it two reservations for American Indians. And this church of sincere Christian people wanted to do something to help these folks uh, with their the alcohol abuse issues and the suicide rate, had the highest suicide rate in the country. And they tried, they tried, and they were baffled why it, they had hardly any success they would go to the reservations and invite the people to come to church. Huh. And they'd offer them you know, dinners and, and, and things like that, but, but they kept on falling back into alcoholism and, and the suicide rate was continuing to go on. The pastor told me, they just don't seem like they want to pull themselves out of the hole they're in. Those Native Americans, they just seem to want to commit suicide. I don't, I don't get it. Something about that. I pointed out to them that maybe, maybe the lack of success has something to do with the fact that half of these folks always wore cowboy hats and cowboy boots and cowboy belts and had a cowboy swagger. Now, they didn't notice this. This is just fish. It's hard for fish to notice the water you swim in. But as a Minnesotan coming there, and we don't have quite as much cowboyishness going on around here, I noticed it. And so I put it like, there's a cowboy culture here. Could that possibly affect some of what's going on here? Also, the fact that your church is in the shadows of the statue of General Custer. I'm wondering if that, that, that then the statue is associated to a museum, museum that still celebrates the wild, wild west, as though that was a good thing. Might that possibly affect what's going on here? You think? See, it's about becoming aware of the powers. It's a little bit like if you had German Christians trying to minister to some Jews while they're dressed up in Nazi uniforms with a statue of Hitler just down the street and a museum to the Nazis that, that didn't denounce it. It's not totally unlike that. And see, it's not that these folks agreed with all of that. Maybe they didn't. But if you don't name the powers and you don't call out the powers and don't renounce the powers, well, then they still have power over you. The silence the silence means it just keeps on being propagated. Uh, when someone tell the children's ministry, we're going to go just a little bit over here, and I really don't want to uh, shorten this thing right now. 
Uh, so just someone uh, back there, one of the ushers, would you tell them that we're going to go eight minutes over? See, this, this, it exposes the myth of rugged individualism. Yes, hard work pays off. Definitely, got to go with that. But we white folks had a little bit of help in building up this great country. We had help from the land that we stole and the people that we conquered. In fact, the truth is that we white folks, and this isn't about feeling individually guilty now, okay? It's not my fault for being born white, but I have to be aware of this. Uh, uh, we have been the benefactors of the, the greatest welfare program of any empire in history. As Jim Kim, by the way, I'm getting some of this from Jim Kim's message during our Compassion by Command series, our uh, uh, conference that we had, the Ultimate Compassion uh, uh, conference, and, and I encourage you to listen to his, his, his great speech there. But we've been benefactors of a welfare program. And let's not forget who worked those 40 acres much of the time. For 300 and more years, we got free labor from the 3 million Africans that we imported here and built up a great deal of wealth on the blood of their backs and the lives that were lost in process or lives that were lost once we got here. Like Pharaoh of old, we knew that the fastest, best way to build up a wealthy empire is through free labor, and we did that. In fact, the truth is that we stole the land twice in some respects. This phrase, 40 acres and a mule, it was originally, that was the phrase that was used right after the Civil War, uh, that was promised to the ex-slaves. We will give you 40 acres and a mule for reparation, and that way you can start to make your way as a free a citizen in this country. 40 acres and a mule was given to them. It lasted for about a year until President uh, Andrew Johnson, the successor of Abraham Lincoln, decided that that wasn't going to work, so he took the land back and gave it back to the white owners. In fact, during the 12 years of Reconstruction, right after the Civil War, from 1865 to 1877, if you do research on this, it's just fascinating, because during that time, there was incredible progress made on civil rights, on, on, on giving uh, the former slaves access to power. In the southern states, Mississippi and Alabama, you, you'll see, if you look at the records, a, 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 an incredible number were getting into Congress and Senate and, and, and mayors and governors, and, and they were getting access to power, having some say-so in this land, to the point where... Around 1876, some folks began to feel, uh, some white folks began to feel threatened by that, so they started changing the laws, came up with black codes, Jim Crow laws, some ad hoc rules, like you have to be able to read if you're going to vote or run for office, knowing that these folks who they had enslaved all this time couldn't read, and so in that way got them out of power, and you'll see, starting in 1877, the rate of participation in political processes just drops. In fact, we're still not to the level now that we were uh, back in 1875, 1876. The sins of the forefathers are visited on the subsequent generations. And we and God are still dealing with this. And we have to deal with this. We have to say it out loud. You can't understand poverty in the United States, can't understand race relationships in the United States, unless you understand the way we've been played by the powers, unless you understand the effects of generational sin, unless you understand that it's not always the land of equal opportunity. We've got to look at it systemically. Yes, individual responsibility. And you're only guilty for what you could have done otherwise. And hard work does pay off, absolutely. But let's not kid ourselves. We inherit a world when we come into this world, and I, as a white person, when I make my individual choices, I do it in the context of four centuries of having benefited from what we just talked about. I benefit from my forefathers stealing land, enslaving blacks, and on and on and on. 
When blacks and, Afri- and, and American Indians make their individual choices, they do it in the context of four centuries of having headlands stolen from them and being enslaved and cheated. And we're still dealing with the sins of our forefathers being passed down. We can't understand statistical differences between people groups without understanding this history. It's about the powers. Now, we'll see next week, talk next week about breaking free from that cycle, breaking free from the inherited sin, breaking free from the powers. But we can't appreciate what it takes to get free unless we understand the power of the powers and its effect over generations. But it starts, and here's how we're going to end. It starts by waking up to the powers, waking up to the inaccuracy of our myopic perspectives that it's all about individual choice. It, it, it starts by renouncing the sin of the ancestors that fueled the powers. It, it starts by renouncing the myths that maybe we've lived by. The myth of General Custer and Christopher Columbus as a hero. Because unless we name it, it continues to go on and on and on. We have to name and renounce the myth of rugged individualism, the myth of this being a Christian nation, of, that our nationalistic heroes were always the good guys, that the playing field has always been level. So here's what we're going to do. It's going to take three minutes. Uh, it says in Ephesians 3.10, God's intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. Those are the ones that we struggle against. Part of our job is to proclaim it, to make it known with our life, to make it known with our, our speech. Renouncing, saying out loud, confessing what is true, which begins to break the, the, the lies that they have on us. So I've written up this, what I'm calling a proclamation, uh, proclaiming truth. It should be proclaiming truth to the powers. And it's going to be like a liturgical reading. There is such power in solidarity when we, when we speak truth together. So I'd like us to speak this truth together. Now, it's going to apply to us in different ways. The sins that are being confessed are, are the sins of my European ancestors. Maybe not yours. But would you confess it with me? Because in the body of Christ, those distinctions have become irrelevant. And by standing together in this, we're, 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 we have greater power at renouncing the lies and the sins that we have inherited. So we stand here with me. And I'd like to ask you to join your hands with one another. I will read the white section. You read the yellow. And I encourage you to read this with conviction. Unless this isn't your conviction, in which case you're free not to read it at all. But, but if you do, if you are standing in solidarity with this, read it with conviction. As followers of Jesus and citizens of his kingdom, we are called to live and confess God's wisdom and truth in the face of the powers that seek to deceive and oppress us and all other people. You say. We stand and Amen. We are grateful for the many benefits we enjoy as Americans and for the good America has done. Amen. As followers of Jesus, we are called to manifest the one new humanity Jesus died to create. We renounce the sin of our ancestors who died humanity to give Amen. We are called to love, serve, and bless all people, even our enemies.
We are called to practice justice and honesty in our dealings with others. We are called to be a people who know the truth and are set free by the truth. We renounce the myth that Christopher Columbus discovered America and that it was manifest destiny for white Europeans to conquer and rule non-whites in America. We renounce the American mythology that depicts the cowboys as the good guys and the Indians as the bad guys. I want us to now read this with passion. As followers of Jesus, we declare that we know the truth and the truth has set us free. Mm -mm. As new creations in Christ Jesus, we have been set free from the sins and lies of our ancestors. We have been set free from the idolatry of nationalism and the sin of racism. Amen. We have been set free from the need to hoard wealth, possessions, and food. We've been set free to love unconditionally, to live generously, and to serve sacrificially. We've been set free to tear down walls and build bridges. With our lives and with our words, we declare to the powers Jesus is Lord. Jesus is King. Jesus is victorious. Jesus has set us free, and we will stand fast in this freedom. Hallelujah. Amen. Amen. Yes, hallelujah. Praise God. Praise God. Praise God. Praise God. Praise God. See that saying it, declaring it is the first step. You got to name it, you got to declare it, renounce it. Set captives free. It's what it's all about, folks. The altar is going to be open if you want to come forward for prayer for any matter whatsoever. Our prayer teams will come forward right now. I just want to end with this uh, benediction. Uh, let's go forward. Staying awake to the powers. Staying free from judgment. Myopic thinking. Let's go forth. Living lives that are revolting against the power and the systemic sin and generational sin that keeps us captive. Let's go forward. Living in the freedom for which Christ has set us free. Stand fast in that freedom, never to be oppressed again. In Jesus' name, we pray and all God's people said, amen. amen. God bless you guys. Go out and live free.